We've been exploring the book of James, and James is a powerful, powerful letter. It was perhaps one of the very first books of the New Testament that the early church had. And so it is very practical, and what you'll discover as you read through James is that it will unsettle you. If you, if you read it and take it to heart, it's, it's going to push in areas of your life that you really don't enjoy having the Lord push on you, but they're areas that we need to have probed and contested. Now, James, as we've explored in the past few weeks, was written by James, who's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And knowing that helps us to, to see some of the conviction and the power that James is speaking about. Can you imagine what it was like to, to grow up with Jesus as your brother? Now, Jesus didn't begin his, his ministry until he was filled with the Holy Spirit after his baptism. Um, there's no indication he ever did any miracles prior to being filled with the Holy Spirit because he came to, to live both as fully God and fully human and to show us an example of how we are to, to live out the new life he gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But his heart, his convictions, everything about him would have always been there. And if, if your brother was perfect at everything, you know, there would be times when that would be annoying, right? I mean, any of you have a perfect brother or sister? Yeah, yeah. They, they're, Becky was the perfect one, just in case. You know, you went, you went so, um, it would have been challenging. But think of the other things that James would have observed Even though he didn't become a believer until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he would have seen the heart of Jesus, especially his heart for other people. He would have heard the words of Jesus in that they were always well prepared, well thought out. He didn't, words didn't slip from his mouth. They were focused on that which builds up, that which edifies, that which changes. And so with that background, let's, let's read through here James chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 13, and begin to explore this a little bit before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. James here in this passage is giving us a, a lot of very practical information, but the most important thing he is giving us here are four marks to determine whether or not our faith is real. We live in a world, even though it, it seems to be becoming increasingly secular, we live in a world that in truth there is a lot of religion that is pursued. There's Christian-based religions that may or may not have an actual relationship with God. There are many other types of religions. There's the religion of secular humanism where basically I am my own God. Most of us, most humans, even if we would say we're, uh, the person would say they were an atheist, practice a religion. They practice some acts that are there to help show their own worth before God, if they believe there is one, or before themselves, if they consider themselves to be the highest authority. Well, James wants to cut through and say, what you live reveals what you truly believe. And so, if we're to say Jesus Christ is Lord, the Lord of glory, he calls him here. Now, now remember, he grew up his life seeing him and he didn't believe on him until after the resurrection. But once he did, everything in James' life embraced the reality that Jesus Christ is God. And therefore, because he is God, he needs to command my obedience in every aspect of my life. He grew up seeing how he treated others, how he cared for widows and orphans in their distress. He grew up hearing the conversation and then later heard the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so what he's doing is he's giving us some measuring points to determine if it's real, if our faith is authentic. It, maybe a good parallel would be, you know, if you were to go into the, to the hospital and have an EKG put on your heart, the different leads would reveal how the different chambers of your heart are functioning. Well, we don't have a medical scan that can see into our spirit to determine whether or not our faith is real, but we do have some test points that he gives us here in this scripture that causes us to really examine and evaluate, is it authentic? If anyone thinks he is religious, and first of all, the first measuring point does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
So what he's saying first and foremost is the measurement you and I have to look at is our conversation and whether or not we are controlling our conversation because it is the, the scripture tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means if there are good things in my heart, good things come out of my mouth. But maybe like me, you've discovered that Oftentimes, there are not so many good things that come out of my mouth. I'm critical. I gossip. I slander. I tear down others. None of those reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit in my heart and life. They're revealing my own sinfulness. And so what he's saying is that we need to control our conversation, which what he means is we need to put that under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, would you give me the words to speak? Would you show me when to speak, when to listen, as we looked at last week? Remember, we're supposed to listen twice as much as we speak. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. It's a practical illustration of understanding how we are to function in this world when it comes to our conversation. Last week, we looked at the word meekness. And and I told you that meekness does not mean weakness. It's a picture of a powerful horse who listens to the voice of its master. And that power and that strength is under the control of the whisper of the master. Well, here he's picking up on the same kind of theme when he says, bridle your tongue. Now, um, if English isn't your first language, you may or may not be as familiar. Bridle is simply those, the reins that you place upon a horse. And, you know, usually they're made of leather. There's a harness that goes on its head and a bit that goes in the horse's mouth and two reins that come, come back so that you can control where the horse is going to go. And uh, they're incredibly useful. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried riding without reins or without a bridle, um, it all depends upon the nature of the horse, but it can be a disastrous experience. I, I experienced that at an early age um, where... <laughs> Um, our sister, my friend and I, my best friend and I's sisters convinced us to go riding on, on this horse um, that was my, belonged to my neighbor, and they didn't put a bridle on it, and then they thought they would make it really, really exciting in that they loosened the cinch on the saddle and then slapped the horse on the back and sent us off, and we didn't last very long <laughs> before we landed in a briar patch. Um, so I learned that you really need the bridle to control the horse, and it helps if the saddle stays on as well. It was not a very pretty picture and probably damaged my desire to ride a horse for the rest of my life, but that's okay. We need something to control it. And, and if you could picture, I mean, there are times when I really wish I had reins to pull back on my tongue because we're all tempted and often fail in saying things that we should not say, saying things that tear us down. You know, um, Carmina and, and Ben opened up a beautiful little leather shop, and, and they've got all kinds of products. It's just opened this week, and it's, it's really cool what they've got there. But I don't think you have any reins or bridles yet for the tongue, do you? or even for horses. You know. She's going, why did you say that, Drew? I, she, she, she's sinking down. Don't worry. It was, it was meant to be a good thing. I need, I, maybe I need to special order one and see what we can do. We need that. And, and, he's, and we need to take control, to place it under the lordship of Christ. The scripture is filled 
with instruction about what we say because it reveals our heart. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths or not to damage others. We're not to lie to others. He tells us to put away all falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And we're told not only to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. That means we speak the truth in a way that builds up and strengthens others, not tears them down. So how's your tongue? How's your conversation? When you look at that first measuring point, do you see that the Lord is in control of what you say? Or does God need to do some work in your heart like he does in my heart? That's the first measuring point. One of the things that we need to always remember, especially when we are criticizing others, is that that person is made in the image of God. He created them. More than that, their value is the exact same value that God places on us Because he gave his very life. Jesus died on a cross to rescue that person. Therefore, I need to be very, very cautious before I criticize who they are or what they've done. Instead, we want to speak the truth in love. Now, James here is not talking about occasionally making a mistake. He's talking about a lifestyle where our tongue is unbridled, uncontrolled. And if that's the case, we need to explore whether or not we genuinely have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, or if we're simply trying to follow an outward religion. John put it, um, (coughs) put it this way in saying that both our words and our deeds need to engage and reveal our heart. He said, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So John's doing the same thing that James is. He's saying, I want want you to examine your heart and see if the words that you speak, and then secondly, the second measuring point is, are the actions that you take, are they revealing that your faith is real? James puts it this way. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He gives us two marks in that one passage. The first one is it reveals the care of our heart or our compassion. Now, if if you're one like me that marks your Bible, I want to encourage you to, to, to mark or underline one particular word in this passage that is incredibly important, and it is the word visit. Visit. It doesn't say we care about widows and orphans. It doesn't say... We send money to take care of those who are in need. Visit implies it is something that each of us are personally engaged in at some level. That puts a whole lot more weight on it, doesn't it? What he's saying is examine your heart. Are you 
showing in a personal way, one-on-one, my heart, my love to another person, a person who is in need. Whether they're a, a widow or an orphan, and these are representations of those who are desperate, who, who don't have someone else to care for them, and so God has placed you and I in their life to visit them in their affliction. In each of our lives, we will encounter people or walk by people uh, on a regular basis that God has placed before us and is calling us to be His witness, His instrument to bring hope into their life. And here's the thing about hope that I've discovered. Years ago, uh, I was doing some um, medical work with a mission team in Africa, and, and, and one of the things that I really discovered was that hope always arrives in person. We can send health care to people who are in need. We can send food to nourish them. But hope requires a face-to-face encounter. That's what he's talking about here is when God is calling us to be engaged in the lives of those around us in a personal way so that we can reveal to them the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Not just care for their needs, but to visit them in their affliction. A true relationship with Jesus Christ always leads to acts of compassion. Can you imagine what it was what it's like when James is writing these things? The, the memories that he must have had, thinking back not only to the ministry of Jesus, the things that he saw when Jesus is feeding the 5,000 or when he's, he's doing the unthinkable thing in his day and he's touching a leper to heal him the heart and the compassion, but it would have went back even farther to things he would have remembered even from Jesus' childhood because he was always God, and so the heart of God would have always come out in the way that he treated others and cared for them. He's calling us to become more and more like Jesus Christ and and see that this is the condition of our heart. Now, here in this passage, I told you he gives us two marks. Number one is the practical care for those in need. And Spurgeon does a great job of of saying what this verse is telling us is this is the garments, these are the clothes that we as followers of Jesus Christ should wear. And they consist of two things, charity and purity. We need to be unstained by the world. And we need to have clothes of charity so that the impact, the things that other people see are our acts of compassion that reflect the heart of Jesus Christ in all that we do. And we're to remain unstained by the world and by its idols. Acts chapter 15 gives it, gives it this way. He says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. This is, this is James' instruction at the, the Council of Jerusalem when they are setting aside Paul and Barnabas. And he's given exactly the same instructions to Paul and Barnabas as they're beginning their ministry as he gives here in his letter. It seemed <clears throat> good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from idols. He's saying, don't be, um, remain unstained by the world. Don't look like the world around you. And then 
also, he says, um, Paul then commenting on this time, this encounter in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, verses 7, says this, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and, um, and they to the circumcised. So they're having two different missional focuses. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So James practiced in the church exactly what he wrote in the letter. When he's sending them out, he's telling them two things. Be unstained by the world and remember the poor. Visit the widow and orphan in their distress. So we're, and what we're to do, the reason that we're to be unstained from the world is that we are to guard our character and Christ's reputation. If I look just like the world around me in my convictions and the things that I do, how will the world ever see Jesus Christ in me and through me? Not only that, but if I become more and more like the world, then my thought patterns will be controlled by the world and there'll be no opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work through me. So the measuring point he gives us here, the third one is, do I look more like the world or do I look more like Jesus Christ in my convictions, in my actions, in the things that I'm passionate about? When you develop an opinion about a particular issue, a position, what are you basing that opinion on first? Is it on your own wants? Is it on the popular opinion of the world, the cultural influence around you? Or are you seeking God's word to see what does it tell me about God's heart and nature and character? And then as you examine that, are you choosing to pursue and honor and reflect the character of Christ Jesus? To do that, we must be humble. It's not enough to have the right belief. We also must have the right attitude. And that's where he wraps it up here, fourthly, in that the ultimate measurement of your life and my life, whether or not our faith is real, is living the royal law of loving our neighbor as ourselves. James said, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Not just making a mistake. You are so off the mark. He's wanting us to know it is sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The royal law is to love others as ourselves. It is a call to action to live out your love for God by loving others. James tells us that, my brothers, there should not be any partiality. If you hold on to Jesus as the Lord of glory, we cannot have prejudice and favoritism. Now, one of the tragic truths of the history of the church is that we have failed in this area so many times. From so many of our home countries, if we look at it, we will see that there are people groups that are discriminated against. Racially, cultural groups, and this is never the heart of the gospel. 
In fact, it is the exact opposite of the gospel. And the book of Revelation is, is an incredible passage that talks about the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, being proclaimed worthy to open up the book, the book that is basically going to unveil the, real, the will of God and the work and power of God. And the reason that he is proclaimed worthy is that he is the lamb that was slain, the one who gave his life on a cross and redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That should be reflected in our hearts. One of the beautiful things uh, about the International Church of Prague is that we get to live out that equality of seeing that people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all cultures, we are one in Jesus Christ. It's one of the most beautiful things about this church. And it's a great joy that I know brings not only pleasure to the Lord, but his favor. He has favored us as a congregation because we've, we've chosen to live that truth. But here's the thing. As a church, we have a tendency to have people come in. They're here for a short period of time, maybe for a weekend, maybe for a year or two years, and then they go back. Here's what we want to make sure happens is that that conviction, that truth, that measurement of loving others as Christ loves us and as we love ourselves, that that becomes contagious and that we take it back with us wherever we came from and wherever we go. Because partiality robs us of seeing the power of the gospel. Understand, sin from its very beginning caused blame and division. All the way back into the garden, the first thing that happened was Adam, when he's asked about his sin, he blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and there becomes a, a division, a dividing, where they were once fully one flesh, there's now friction. And that has been multiplied out throughout the generations and throughout multitudes and multitudes of peoples until there is friction. And there's no peace that human effort itself can work that truly will bring all lives together, but Jesus Christ can. That's why James makes this such an important point, saying there can't be partiality. You can't, base people, you can't judge people based upon the goods that they have, because if a person is rich, what they have, only what they have is what God has given them. And when he's examining the real economy of, of God's realm, that which really matters, he's saying most of the time those who are poor are far richer in faith. I, I discovered this in such a powerful way several years ago in Indonesia. Um, there was a group of, and I, I probably have told many of you this story before, but um, we, were, we were working in a, a uh, a project during a, a very active jihad, a war against a group of believers on the island of Ambon. And there was an attack on a particular village, and many were killed, and the people f in the night fled through the jungle. And we met those who were coming out of the jungle um, to, with a place to give them some shelter. We just put up a tarp and some food uh, because we, we heard the attack and knew that they were coming. And a little later, they were settled in a refugee area, which was a, a warehouse where each family was given a, 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 
a wooden pallet that was their space to live. And, and outside, as I was watching this and I was seeing the hearts of these people who had, who had seen their loved ones killed, who'd lost their possessions, who'd lost their homes, there was a song being sung. And that song that was being sung by the children was nearer my God to thee. They had discovered that Christ really was all they wanted. And when I saw the richness of their faith, it was so convicting to my own heart because I am so abundantly blessed and rich materially. And yet I learned from them who had nothing, the greatest value in all the world is Jesus Christ. James, in essence, is telling us that what we are to do is what we as a church have summed up in the simple statement, give grace. We're to love others as Christ has loved us, to show grace to them as he has shown grace to us. And he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are being judged by the law of liberty. Christ is in you. Now you're free to do good. That's what the law of liberty means. You're free to live as I created and saved you to do. Live out your freedom. If you don't, judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. And then he ends with this powerful little sentence, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel all in one simple statement. If you forget anything else that happens today, remember that one sentence. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's why that is so powerful. The truth is you and I, every one of us, need mercy. I am a sinner. My sin has separated me from God. But God, in his mercy, triumphed over the judgment that you deserve and I deserve. And Jesus stepped in in his mercy and said, I love you. And he's reminding us of this truth so that when we look at the lives of others, those that are around us, we're not looking at the external things about where they come from, what culture they are, what language they speak, what race they come from. We're not looking at how much possessions they have, how influential they are. We're looking and we're seeing a person that Jesus Christ died for of immeasurable value. And we're saying, you know what? I've been shown mercy. And they may be doing things that... that Man, they're an offense to me. They're an offense to God. But Jesus Christ, in his mercy, wants to triumph over the judgment and bring them to salvation. That's what he's calling us to do. Not to look at the externals, but if we're to have a kingdom heart, a heart like Jesus Christ, we need to remember the gospel that mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment will come. And the truth is, I don't want justice. You don't want justice either. Because what we justly deserved is what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. But in his mercy, he took our place. I need mercy. Therefore, 
It is our call to give mercy. That's why we are to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. That's why we are to have a conversation that is guarded with the words of Christ because it is all about showing mercy, showing grace to others. And that's ultimately what we have displayed in the bread and in the cup, in what Jesus did on the cross and what he showed to us in the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate that, and, and, and Preston's going to come here in just a moment and lead us in the Lord's Supper. But let me pray for us right now. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would take your truth and allow it to penetrate our hearts, my heart. Lord, help me to truly examine whether my, my faith in you is, is real. Because it's not about our positions. It's not about how long we've been in church. It's about whether or not we truly know you. So Lord, would you speak to each and every one of our hearts and reveal to us areas where we're missing the mark. But you, you've said if, if we're guilty of one, we're convicted of it all. So Lord, where my tongue is not being under your control, under your lordship. Change me. Or my heart is not reflected by visiting those who are in need personally. Lord, not only provide opportunities, but prompt us into action. Lord, guard us from partiality, from judging on the externals. And Lord, keep us unstained from the world. Let us value you and your word above all else so that we might rightly reflect you. And finally, Lord, help us to remember that mercy, your mercy, has already triumphed over judgment. That is the good news. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.